Okay, this morning we're going to uh, just be looking at uh, this story of the resurrection, of Jesus' resurrection. Now, I I don't know if you um, saw uh, in the paper yesterday, but there was an article in the paper I was reading, and uh, a church, uh, a minister, had asked a sign company to make a sign uh, about Easter and uh, Christ has risen and uh, sent it off to the printers, went to pick it up, um, uh, but unfortunately the printer had made a terrible mistake and hadn't got it quite right, and the sign actually said, Chris has risen. (laughs) Fortunately, they caught it just in time. This uh, Sunday morning, this morning, we're going to be looking at some signs and what they mean. We celebrate a mystery that Christ is risen. Jesus has risen from the dead. It's a mystery. It's fit for a Sherlock Holmes mystery. Sherlock Holmes, for uh, a part of his brilliance, is to analyze what appears to be an unresolved mystery and from clues deduce what has actually happened. The Sherlock Holmes mysteries were uh, written by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and the most, one of the most famous was called The Sign of the Four. And that's what we're going to be uh, looking at this morning. We're, uh, the title this morning is The Sign of the Four and uh, this is a mystery that would have been right up Sherlock Holmes's street. We're going to read a passage, a number of verses from John chapter 20. They will come up on the screen behind me and uh, you will be able to follow them if you don't have a Bible. So John chapter 20, let me read this to you. This is what it says. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still didn't understand the scripture that Christ Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned round and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. 
she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. At Easter, we focus on the two foundation stones of the Christian faith. On Good Friday, our attention is on the cross. Today, no serious historian would dispute that Jesus lived and was crucified. The gospel accounts make it clear that medically, Jesus was dead before his body was taken down from the cross. John tells us in his gospel that a soldier put a spear into Jesus' side and outflowed blood and water. That tells us that the spear probably pierced his pericardium, the sac that surrounds the heart, and outflowed blood and water that had separated. The separation is a clear sign of death. The second foundation stone is this morning on Easter Sunday when we focus on the resurrection of Christ. The Apostle Paul, quoting a very early Christian creed, says Jesus died but rose again from the dead three days later. This declaration of faith is and was and will forever be the rallying cry of genuine Christianity. It's what we've been celebrating as people got baptised this morning. They've been identifying with the fact that Jesus died and rose again and he did it for them. Without the resurrection, the Christian faith is useless. And so by examining the evidence that's before us in this passage this morning, I want to show you that Jesus rose from the dead. This morning we're going to consider the sign of the four. As we start, Sherlock Holmes, if he were real, would remind us, when you've eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. Are you ready? The game is afoot. First of all, here's the first sign. The stone was rolled away. We're told Jesus was buried with Pilate's permission in an unused tomb belonging to Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Jewish ruling council. This was never disputed by any of the religious leaders of the day. A typical tomb consisted of a rock chamber with shelves cut into the side of the rock where they would lay the body. The low entrance was closed with a large disc-like rock. This large rock would have possibly weighed about two ton, and it would have rolled it. One person could have easily rolled it in because it was, there were grooves cut into the ground, and they were able to push it into place, covering the entrance, and it was pushed downhill. But to move it back out of the way, to reopen the tomb, would have taken at least two or three people. And so no one would have been able to open the tomb from inside. Early on that Sunday morning, we read Mary Magdalene went to the tomb. She probably, we're told, from Mark's Gospel, we're told there would probably be two other ladies with her. They went to anoint Jesus' body, to put spice, spices on his body. 
Matthew tells us they were unsure how they were going to move this huge rock that was in front of the, of the tomb. When they got there, they were shocked to find that the, the tomb was open. The, the rock, the dislike rock in front had been moved. I don't know about you, have you ever had a moment where something you're expecting to be there isn't there? I remember being in Alton Towers and uh, parking my car thinking I'd remember where I parked. It came back to the car park and suddenly this car park, which was empty when I arrived, was full of cars. And I remember standing there looking, thinking, I don't know where this car is. Is it here? And I remember having the, probably the best ride of the day was going in this van with flashing lights on it. They drove me around the car park as we tried to find the car. Eventually, we found it. But I, where I initially went to, to, to look for the car, it wasn't there. I went to the wrong place. Is that what happened with these women? Did they go to the wrong tomb? Did they get it wrong? No. Because clearly if they'd gone to uh, the wrong tomb, there were a number of people who had an interest in proving that there was a tomb and there was a body still in it. It would have been easy to find. The religious leaders of the day, the, the Roman soldiers would have been able to say, no, 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 you've got the wrong tomb. That's, that's, the, that, that, that's a new tomb. It's never been used. This is the real tomb. Here's the body. But they never did it. And they couldn't because they went to the right tomb. It was so well known that where this tomb was that Peter, when he preached six weeks later, he cited the empty tomb to thousands of people on the day of Pentecost. And everybody accepted what he said was true because everybody knew that it was right. So who moved the stone? People have asked this question over the centuries. There's a famous book written in the 30s called Who Moved the Stone, written by a guy called Frank Morrison. And Frank Morrison set out to prove that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And he wrote a book called Who, Roll, Who Moved the Stone? And what he found as he started to unpack and look at the evidence with his legal background... He came to the conclusion at the end that Jesus Christ did in fact rise from the dead and he became a Christian. And the whole premise of the book changed from one of trying to disprove Christianity to accepting that it was true. Various alternatives have been put forward about who moved the stone. The Romans and the Pilate's instructions, religious leaders. Maybe Joseph came back with some other people's help later to move the body. Maybe the disciples did it themselves. Maybe it was someone else. We're going to think about that in a moment or two. The first sign is that the stone in front of the tomb was rolled away. The second sign is this. The body was missing. There was a missing body. When Mary looked inside the tomb, the body had gone. Peter and John ran to the tomb and corroborated what she said. Jesus' body had disappeared. Can we believe the gospel stories? 
Because when you read the different gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there, there seem to be discrepancies between their stories. Can we believe uh, these gospel accounts? Can we believe what we've been told, that Jesus' body was missing? I want to tell you this. Irrespective of all the discrepancies in the accounts, they all agree on the fundamental fact that the body was gone and the tomb was empty. The discrepancies are all secondary. They're the sort of thing you would expect when you have different witnesses in a court of law. They don't all tell the same story. If they're all telling exactly the same story, you know that they're fabricating. They've colluded before the case. The discrepancies show that actually they see things from a different perspective. They notice different things. But the main point that they're seeking to provide evidence for is true. Jesus' body was gone. History uh, uh, proves this sort of, we accept this sort of uh, thing as evidence. When Hannibal crossed the Alps to attack uh, Rome, there are two uh, accounts of, of his campaign through the Alps. Both of them have massive inconsistencies. Both of them have massive inconsistencies, and yet no historian doubts that Hannibal did, in fact, cross the Alps to attack Rome. The same is true here. The body was missing. The religious leaders or Roman authorities had nothing to do with the missing body. Let me tell you why. If they had, they would have produced the body as soon as Jesus' disciples started saying publicly that Jesus had risen from the dead. They would have said, actually, here's the body, it's a pack of lies. They couldn't provide a body because there wasn't one. There's no obvious reason why Joseph of Arimathea would come back with a group of people to move the body. There's no reason why he would do it. There's no evidence that he did it. And in fact, Joseph himself was a follower of Jesus. And if he'd done it, he, would, he was watching. He would have watched on as, uh, as, uh, as fellow believers, fellow Christians were uh, dying for their faith in the fact that Jesus had risen from the dead. And he would have said, no, I'm sorry, that's, I, sorry, I moved it. It's not true. It wasn't Joseph who did it. The disciples themselves wouldn't have done it. I mean, these disciples, of these disciples, the majority of them died a martyr's death for saying that Jesus rose from the dead. Would they do it for a lie? Of course they wouldn't. We are left with the fact that Jesus' body disappeared and no one took it. We're told a couple of other things, that Pilate gave permission for a guard to be set at the tomb. It wasn't just that the tomb was there and uh, there was no one around. There was a, a group of guards providing security around the tomb just to prevent someone coming and taking the body because the Jews were concerned that that someone might do that. In fact, the Jewish authorities never argued that there was no guard. They just said when uh, the, uh, the body disappeared, they just said actually the guards fell asleep. That's what happened. And that's the story that they put. They never said that actually uh, there was no guard. You see, no one doubted that the tomb 
was empty. No body was ever produced simply because there was no body to produce. It was gone. The third sign is this. The folded grave clothes. When they laid the body in the tomb, this is what they would have done. They would have taken Jesus' body to the tomb and they would have wrapped it in three cloths, two or three cloths, big cloths. And they would have wrapped it round the body like that up to about shoulder height. And the arms would have either been straight down the side or they'd have been crossed like that. And they would have wrapped the body up tightly. And in between each layer, as the, each layer of cloth went round, they would have put a mixture of spices and aromatic gum to pre- preserve the body and to uh, stop the uh, smell of decay. And uh, we're told that they used about 75 pounds of, of spices. Now, 75, I want you to imagine 75 pounds is a two-pound bag of sugar. That's a th- over 32-pound bags of sugar wrapped within these layers around the body. Now, those layers over time would have hardened, but they were wrapped tightly around the bodies. So arms and legs. And then over, over the face, there was a cloth put and it was tied behind the head. So there was a cloth just over the face. But the shoulders would have been bare. And the body would have been laid on the side uh, of this, inside this tomb, on this rock ledge. That's what would have happened. Peter went inside and he looked and he was confused. We're told he, he went away, uh, he wasn't quite sure what was going on, he was puzzled and he was thinking about it. He went in and looked and wasn't, wasn't sure what was going on. John, who goes in afterwards, John goes in and it says about John, he saw and he believed. John saw and believed. What was it that John believed? Well, John saw these grave clothes, he saw these grave clothes in place. He saw that actually the grave clothes hadn't been torn off a body. He saw that there was no spices or anything on the floor. He just saw the grave clothes as if the body had been in these cloths. He saw the the cloth over the head just laid in the place where it had been. But the head wasn't there. There was no evidence in the tomb of disturbance. Campbell Morgan says this, the grave clothes had not been disturbed. They were just as Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus left them. The wrappings were still there. The spices had not escaped. Moreover, the napkin wrapped in a peculiar way about the head was undisturbed, folded up. That word does not mean smoothed out. The napkin was still in the folds that had been wrapped, uh, wound round the, the head. What happened? Well, if Jesus didn't die and somehow revived in the cool of the tomb, his body was broken. He was dehydrated. There would have been a huge loss of blood. He would have been wrapped tightly in cloths made heavier by the aloes and myrrh. It would have been impossible to have removed them by himself. He would never have been able to have moved the rock in front of the tomb. Jesus didn't swoon. Jesus was dead. Anyone stealing the body would have strewn clothes and spices around the tomb. Why on earth would someone bother 
not bother uh, just taking the whole body wrapped up as it was. If someone was going to steal the body, they would have just taken it wrapped up as it was, or they would have torn the clothes clothes off and left them. There was no evidence of the sort. The clothes were there as if the body had just passed right through. John is telling us something supernatural happened. The grave clothes were like a discarded chrysalis from which a butterfly had emerged. D.A. Carson says this, Jesus' resurrection body apparently passed through the grave clothes, spices and all, in much the same way he later appeared in a locked room. The tomb was empty, he had gone, the ultimate sign was complete. When John looked inside the tomb, he saw and he believed. He saw the grave close and he was convinced that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. We come now to the fourth sign. Two angels. Does that have any relevance at all? I've read this story many times over the years And I've often wondered, why two angels? What's that about? And then I've just passed over it. You see, Mary looks into the tomb, we're told, and she sees two angels clothed in white, and they're sitting on the ledge where they've laid Jesus' body. One of them is seated next to where the head would have been, and the other angel is sitting where the feet would have been. Why on earth are we given that detail? I've often wondered, why on earth do we get that level of detail? What, is, what are we being told here? I was away uh, on um, study leave in early February, and I, read, I was reading an old Puritan book from the 1600s by a guy called Richard Sibbs. It's called A Heavenly Conference. And he mentions, he's talking, the whole book is about Mary's encounter with Jesus And he just says, very simply, he starts to talk about this, and he explains it in this way. He goes back and he talks about uh, the temple, and he talks about the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, the Ark of the Covenant, I don't know if you've, um, for those of you who don't know what the Ark of the Covenant is, if you've seen Steven Spielberg's The Raiders of the Lost Ark, that would be, if you've got in your mind uh, that, that image, that's what the Ark would have looked like. So a box uh, covered in gold, and inside it were the Ten Commandments. And this was hidden behind uh, a great big curtain in what's called in the temple the most holy place. No one was allowed into the most holy place. It was where God presenced himself amongst his people. God said, I'm going to dwell among you, but you can't come near me because you will be destroyed. I'm a holy God. Much as I love you, you can't come into my presence. So there was this huge curtain that protected people from God's presence, protected them from being destroyed because God was holy and they weren't. And so inside, behind this curtain was the law that God had made and it was inside uh, this uh, Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the Ark, there was something what was called the mercy seat, the atonement cover. And what happened, once a year, the high priest was allowed to come in 
to the presence of God, come through the curtain, and he would bring an offering of blood, and he would place it on the Ark of the Covenant, on the mercy seat. And God would forgive his people's sin, their wrongdoing, the things they'd done to offend God. And on top of the Ark, there were two angels. One at one end, one at the other, looking at each other, and their wings covered the mercy seat. When Mary went in to the tomb that Easter Sunday morning, she saw two angels, one at the head, one at the feet. She saw the place where Jesus' body had been laid the sacrifice for our wrongdoing. It's as though we see a picture there of what really happened on those three days over Easter. Jesus died on our behalf. A holy God punished his son so that we might be forgiven. Jesus presented, as it were, his own body on the mercy seat, on the atonement cover, for us. When Mary went in, she saw that the price had been paid. The once-for-all sacrifice had been made. God had accepted his son's sacrifice that we might be forgiven forever. This is what it says in Hebrews. I'd just like you to listen to this. That first covenant between God and Israel had regulations for worship and a place of worship here on earth. There are two rooms in that tabernacle. The first room was called the holy place. Then there was a curtain, and behind the curtain was the second room called the most holy place. In that room was a wooden chest called the Ark of the Covenant. Above the Ark were the cherubim of divine glory whose wings stretched out over the Ark's cover, the place of atonement, the mercy seat. Only the high priest ever entered the most holy place and only once a year. And he always offered blood for his own sins and for the sins of the people, the sins the people had committed in ignorance. Christ has now become the high priest over all the good things that have come. He has entered that greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made by human hands and is not part of the created world. With his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. Just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. Four signs. There's a stone that's been rolled away. No one knows who moved it. It's God who moved it. The body was missing. The body was missing, was never able to be produced because Jesus Christ rose from the dead that first Easter Sunday morning. 
The folded grave clothes were in place because Jesus literally passed, his body just passed through. He is alive right now. He's alive as he's ever been. There is a man, a God-man in heaven. Jesus, both God, completely God, completely man, is now in his Father's presence. He is standing in his Father's presence, and he is a forerunner, so that all who put their trust in him might enter into God's presence and might know him forever. That is the great promise of Easter. And there were two angels. And the two angels remind us that the sacrifice for our wrongdoing has been paid once for all. There is no more sacrifice to be made. Jesus Christ has paid it for me, and he's paid it for you. So what's our response to this magnificent truth? The Pharisees and other religious leaders, they just simply refused to believe. They just wouldn't believe. Whatever the facts, whatever the evidence, they weren't going to believe what had happened. They saw the evidence, they saw the signs, and they refused to believe. Unbelief, fundamentally, is a heart issue. Voltaire once said this, He said, if a thousand people and myself saw a miracle on the streets of Paris, I would rather disbelieve 2,000 eyes plus my own than believe a miracle had happened. That is the essence of unbelief. Is that you this morning? Or are you like Peter who goes in and you've... You see the evidence and you, you're left questioning and you, maybe you've got questions. And if you've got questions, we run something here called an Alpha Course, which is an opportunity for you to come and ask those questions and uh, hear some, uh, uh, some of the stuff that I've been talking about, about Jesus and his death and resurrection, hear it being unpacked, but for you to ask the questions that you have. Maybe you would like to do that. When we, uh, when we start our next Alpha course in, uh, 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 at the beginning of June. But maybe you're like John. Maybe this morning you've seen something and you believe. Let me urge you this morning to put your trust in Jesus Christ. And we see Mary. This woman... She was the first of 500 of Jesus' followers to see him alive. Hundreds of people saw Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, at one time. There is no such thing as mass hallucinations. Everybody's seeing the same thing. It's just medically not true. There there were witness after witness after witness who saw that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and they were prepared to die, some of them the most horrible deaths, because they knew it was true and because they knew there was a life beyond this life that was worth living for. This Easter message is true. Jesus Christ is alive. The question is, are you going to respond as Mary did? 
She literally grabbed hold of him and she worshipped him. Jesus, we're told, came through a tomb, marked no entry, and left through a tomb, marked no exit. He came through a womb, marked no entry, and left through a tomb, marked no exit. I'm going to ask the band to come out. We're going to just celebrate the resurrection of Jesus as we draw to a close this morning. But as we do that, I just want to give you the opportunity to respond in this moment. And I'm just going to pray a prayer. And if you know that you're like, you feel like John, you've seen something this morning and you want to take that first step of coming to know Jesus, you want to believe in him, say, I believe in you, I accept that you died for me, you died on my behalf, I want to pray And I just want you in your heart, in your own mind, you don't have to say it out loud, but I want you to repeat what I say. Similar sort of words are going to help you to take that first step. Lord Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God. I believe that you came to deal with my problem of sin, my wrongdoings, my rebellion my living without reference to God. I believe, Jesus, that you died on a cross and took my punishment. I believe, Jesus, that you died, were buried, and rose again from the dead. And I believe that when you died and rose again, you dealt with my sin that I might be forgiven. Jesus, I put my trust in you and I receive forgiveness. Forgive me for all that I've done wrong. I want to follow you for the rest of my days. Amen. It's as simple as that. And if you prayed that prayer this morning, I want to encourage you to tell someone that you've done it. Come and tell me. Maybe tell the person you came with. Maybe you've got friends here. Tell someone, I did that. That's what I did. You become a follower of Jesus. And and maybe the next step for you, the next baptism, will be when you get baptised. We're going to stand together and we're going to celebrate the fact that Jesus is alive. This is what it says in Revelation. Jesus himself says this. He says this. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. That is the Jesus we worship. Hallelujah.